Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest on our show, Camillo. He is a chem and bio alumni, and he is now coming back into the Ryerson community, which is quite exciting. And we'll talk a little bit more about what got him into science at Ryerson, what he's been doing since then, and how he's joined us back within the Ryerson community now. So without further ado, thank you for joining us, Camillo. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rita. You're the bomb. So as soon as you messaged me for this opportunity, I was like 100% I'm in this. And also, I just want to give a big shout out to everyone that's a part of this Lean In initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like a great initiative. I had the chance to listen to a few of the podcasts. Costin was on it. Rob was on it. So no, I'm incredibly grateful to be here and super proud of y'all for putting this together. Yeah, it's been great. I think I, I kind of just joined on now, but I'm having a lot of fun getting to interview as much <laughs> as I possibly can. So why don't you give us a little bit of a brief introduction? So, you know, what you did at Ryerson in terms of your education, what your role now is, your current employment, and how you've come back into the Ryerson community. Cool. So I actually started at Ryerson as an undergrad in 2008 in the biology program. I finished in 2012 and then transitioned into graduate school in the molecular science program and was working under Costin Antonescu's supervision. Grad school lasted three years or two and a half years. I finished in 2015. From there, I was uh, working as a consultant in the pharmaceutical sector. I was working at Sanofi and I was working at Apotex on two major projects that they had to kind of like extend and develop their quality assurance departments. From there, a good friend of mine, Eugenia Duodu, was finishing up her PhD in 2015. And in 2015, she decided that she's not going to academia or industry. So she decided to take on Visions of Science full time and try to grow it as much as she could. So then in 2016, After my year at Pharma, there was an opportunity for me to come on board part-time at Visions of Science. And then since then, I've been at Visions of Science, ride or die. And technically, it's not since then. I started Visions of Science in 2010 during my undergrad. Yeah, so Dr. Emily Agard was very good friends with, at the time, CEO Francis Jeffers. And it was in in our anatomy class. And she just put out a post. She's like, if anyone's interested in STEM outreach, focusing on racialized and low-income communities, check out Visions of Science because nobody's doing what they're doing. And then at that time, that's when I was like, I'm from these communities. I have a background or trying to get a background in STEM. uh, So it made sense for me to try to like bring those two worlds together. Yeah. So could you just tell us, sorry, what, um, I guess what Visions of Science does for any of the audience members who don't know? A hundred percent. And thank you for bringing that up. Sometimes I take it for granted. I think that Visions of Science is as big as Nike. And even though it's the plan, we're not there yet. So Visions of Science is a charity that focuses on minimizing learning gaps between, specifically in STEM. So we offer STEM learning opportunities to low-income and racialized youth from grades three to grade 12. Now we're looking to extend programming up to 25 years old because we are identifying that a lot of our kids aging out of the grade 12 program still are requesting support. It looks different. Interesting. But they're still asking for support. What kind of support Um, are they asking for, actually? So it's a lot of transitional support. So getting connected. So really, it's connections into networks, mentors, internships, uh, professional experiences, things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, that that's actually a really good point, right? Because I think that's so key in university. And 100%. It's, it's very difficult. And there's just so much, so many barriers to get over. Um, 100%. Especially if you are a first generation university yeah. student. Yeah. You're really a fish out of water, right? Like, yeah. you're, like, you can't lean on your family's experiences through the collegiate experience. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's a lot to like handle is the new schooling people. I mean, when I came to university, I didn't know what a professor even was, like what they right? did. I'm so glad that my first year professor, Dr. McCarthy, told us like the lingo. She's like, always address them as doctor. This is what they do. She kind of like brought everyone up to speed. And it was because like people whose parents didn't go to university here don't know this kind of stuff. A hundred percent. And remind me, you are a first generation university student. 
Yeah, my parents did go to university, but that was okay. back home in Pakistan. Um, but honestly, we didn't know much about what went on here because none of my cousins had really gone to university. I was the first one. So, you know, a lot of this is really, I mean, resonating with me just in that sense of like being feeling lost. A hundred percent. And even you're trying to also balance like number one priority is being successful academically. Yeah. So yeah. like when your focus is like very strongly aligned with being successful, like, and you don't necessarily have the supports to understand how to navigate the ecosystem in uh, post-secondary, no. So we're hoping to provide supports there as well. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'm really yeah. excited to see what happens with that. Me too. I, I think it's definitely going to be the most powerful aspect of our program and we'll see what happens. But yeah, what brings me back to vision, sorry, to yeah. Ryerson yeah. is I'm officially one of the newest members of the board of governors at Ryerson university. And I get the privilege to help lead the university into the future over the next three years. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm very happy about that. That process. I think you just found out like what, two weeks ago literally yeah not the monday that just passed the monday before that yeah it's amazing first of all congratulations thank you nobody better for the job so why don't you tell us about what the board of governors does and what your role here is because i don't think a lot of students don't realize what kind of goes up goes on in the higher levels in the university and how that affects us 100 percent. so the board of governors actually responsible for all strategic uh initiatives at the highest level and they hold all the senior executives accountable to their work. So the president of the university reports directly to the board of governors and their work plan is set out by the board of governors. So really the board of governors, the fact that um, the student learning center exists is a decision that has to be made by the board of governors. The fact that Ryerson is going or developing this law school is a decision that has to go through the board of governors. I believe also when they painted Gould Street blue, <laughs> which a lot of people hated, I believe that's also a decision of the Board of Governors. My role on the Board of Governors is to provide the voice of the alumni, alumni of Ryerson University. So, and also just to shake things up. Yeah. I'm not necessarily someone that's commonly found in these spaces. Mm -hmm. So outside of my experience as an alumni, I also bring my other experiences yeah. um, growing up where I grew up and living the things that I lived through. Yeah, 100%. But I do also, one thing I do want to say is I do want to plug the Board of Governors. I do want to say Please that do. anyone that's a student, an alumni that is going to be listening to this, well, every student is a prospective alumni. Mm. So please, please, please check out the Board of Governors if y'all want to talk more about the Board of Governors. I'm always open to chat about it. And everyone should put this on their radar as something mm -hmm. that, as an opportunity that's available to all of them. Yeah. Because I am somebody, again, that might not be seen commonly in these spaces, but I'm here. And that's, yeah. I guess, an indicator of the accessibility of the opportunity. Yeah, 100%. And I think you're going to do fantastic things that I'm sure about. So why don't we chat a little bit more about your background and where you came from, um, which you've been slightly alluding to. So where did you, I guess, grow up starting from there? What your experience was like throughout elementary, high school, and kind of, you know, what was the road to Ryerson like? How did you get here? For sure. So I grew up on the West End of Toronto. I grew, I grew up born and raised on Jane Street, uh, specifically Jane and Warner, just south of Eglinton. Um, lived there for 30 years of my life. Grew up in a housing community. And yeah, like that's where I grew up. What I was exposed to, I was exposed to a lot of things. The schools, and maybe to be more specific, uh, my community is very overly policed. Mm -hmm. So at a very young age, I was getting stopped by the police randomly, random checks, random IDs, as young as 13 years old. As soon as I was in like grade six, grade seven, and I looked like I was a little bit older, um, yeah. you were getting stopped by the police 100%. And yeah. those experiences, translated into school as well so within school I was underperforming very underperforming didn't have good relationships with any of my teachers well not any in grade in high school I had a good relationship um, yeah but I was racialized I was definitely treated differently mm -hmm. and that's what it was so what was the demographic like actually where you grew up and in your classes like how how would you so, kind of split it yeah in my community it was very much Latino and Caribbean Okay. In the school system, 
about 70% of us were probably Latino and Caribbean and maybe 30, 40% of them were white. And that's what it was. Yeah. So growing up, did you have any siblings? Yeah, I'm actually the youngest of four. So I have three awesome. older siblings. Yeah. Brothers or sisters? Three, si- three sisters. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I'm the only boy. About, I guess, you know, if you had a brother, did you find that your brother was also stopped as often? Um, it's yeah. Prevalent amongst men. Yeah, no, I didn't have any siblings. All my friends that were boys would get stopped just as often. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they would definitely get stopped just as often. My cousins would get stopped just as often. Yeah. My cousins were also in that life at a very young age. So was I. When I say in that life, it was gang life. That's something that my older cousins, friends in the community, the older people in my community were all involved in. Not everyone, but a lot of them, a lot of my friends were involved in that life. That's something that I grew up in as well. In my neighborhood, there was kind of three predominant gangs. And it was kind of just like pick the side that you wanted to be a part of. And that's something that I carried with me throughout my high school experience going into first year of undergrad. First year of undergrad is really when I started to distance myself from it. Yeah. Very interesting. So how did you, I guess, like, that's quite interesting because, you know, how did you, this is an assumption, but I would assume that, you know, someone who's a part of that life, quote unquote, maybe necessarily wouldn't be like, I'm going to university or is that yeah like, do a lot of did a lot of your friends say yeah i'm nah. going to university but i'm gonna stay in my gang i don't know nah nah so that is definitely like uncommon and i think a lot of that was just i knew and i, and I said this earlier i underperformed throughout my entire academic experience in yeah. un, in elementary school middle school high school like i did poorly it took me five years to graduate high school oh really um Yeah, so I actually had to go back for another semester to take physics, chemistry, biology, and math in order to get into a science program in undergrad. But throughout my entire experience, I always felt like I was capable of achieving. I never. So you knew that. Yeah, I never internalized my underperformance as a characteristic of myself. I always felt like I know I'm not applying myself. So if I did apply myself, I would be able to accomplish. Yeah. So that's why. And also, so understanding that I had or I'm feeling like I had the ability to achieve juxtaposed against the risk involved with gang life and being involved in that type of environment, like I I chose to achieve because the risk reward benefit wasn't there. Yeah, for sure. So I guess when did you kind of make like when did you decide first of all when did you realize you wanted to go into sciences and when did you kind of start to be like okay I'm really gonna distance myself from this and become more of myself and did you find that there was a lot of challenges with that like were some of your friends that were still a part of the gangs like what are you doing blah 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 yeah Yeah. so in terms of challenges of stepping away from that community It was a little bit difficult, but not that difficult because one thing that did support that transition was I just didn't spend time in my community. Okay. So there was a period of time where I no longer felt safe walking to my own home because there was a lot of noise that Cam is no longer down with us, Cam. And it was really a lot of the younger kids. So at the time, I'm, I'm 19, 20 transitioning into university and it was the kids that were like 15 16 17 that were really trying to like push this narrative that cam is turning cam is betraying us that type of narrative so during that time i didn't feel comfortable going into my community like until for 20 years of my life as soon as i got off the bus because the bus stop is, is is on my corner i was home during that time as soon as i got off the bus i wasn't home I wasn't home and I didn't know what was going to happen or who it could or when it was going to happen. So I didn't necessarily feel safe until until I was actually physically present within my own home. Right. How did and, you sorry, how did you find that like I guess like that translated to your family? Did it affect them? Like were they a little bit concerned for you or were they like 
oh, I'm very yeah. happy that you're going to school and everything's going well. I don't have the best relationship with my family. Oh, okay. um, so at the time, like I wasn't speaking really to anyone at my family. And that was another reason to not necessarily be home. So when I was in my undergrad, I was spending 16, 17 hour days on campus. Yeah. Um, whether I was mm-hmm. hanging out with friends or whether I was studying, like I always was spending the majority of my life on campus. Right, uh, right. So I wasn't really going home. I didn't have that type of relationship at home. I wasn't best friends with my siblings. I, yeah. I wasn't, I literally wasn't talking to my parents. Yeah. So no, there was no real push for me to be home. So I really only went home to sleep. I would yeah. go home, sleep, wake up, go back to campus, hang out with my friends and study. Yeah. And what, yeah, and I didn't even realize when, what caused kind of the noise to stop, but what ended up happening, and maybe this is just like an unfortunate, fortunate twist of fate, was that the two people responsible for kind of perpetuating that narrative that Cam is no longer kind of respecting the neighborhood ended up getting, their apartment ended up getting raided. Um, uh, for distribution of drugs, yeah. they ended up getting locked away for a few years. And oh, then wow. I never noticed because I was no longer in my neighborhood, but that may have had like a huge impact on kind of that narrative dissolving. Yeah, for sure. So, can you tell me a little bit more about that teacher you said that you had in high school who was the one great teacher relationship? Yeah, 100%. His name was Mr. Tui. Um, I went to Bishop Allen Academy. So my high school experience was very different than my elementary school experience and middle school experience. Um, my high school experience was like 80% white. Bishop Allen is in is located just south of Royal York Station near Royal York and the Queensway. So very affluent neighborhood. And I went to that school because my parents would not sign um, the high school form that allowed me to go to my neighborhood high school because my parents were concerned that already at the age of grade eight, I was involving myself in stuff that was concerning them. Right. So that's when they decided he has to go to school outside of our region. Yeah. I went to school outside of our region. And then that's again, where I experienced a lot of like, just, it was just a different interaction between me and teachers versus everyone else in teachers. Yeah. I actually even had one teacher get me suspended because he said that my presence in class was intimidating. So I was suspended for a week and I was just sitting in class. Oh, that was in grade 11. Yeah. In grade 11. And another time I got suspended um, in grade nine because some kid tried to rob me for my lunch money. Mm-hmm. which sounds like such a silly ass story. Sorry, I swore. Um, <laughs> but he tried to rob me for my money. And at that time, I know where I'm from and I know the people that I know. So I wasn't intimidated and I yeah. just told the guy to like, to go away and, and not the nicest way. And I ended up getting suspended for that. And he went off Scott clear. Yeah. In grade 12, yeah. I was like, he was trying to punk me for my money. So I told him to do what he needs to do. Yeah. But I ended up getting suspended. Yeah. How do you think that affected like your perception of the school system at a, like such a young age? 100%. It was trash. It was trash. Yeah. I hated it. I hated, I hated, I knew what was going to happen anytime I interacted with a teacher. And I knew that the teachers were going to leverage their authority and power yeah. to m- make it okay. But that's why Mr. Tui was such a standout person because yeah. he's the only person in the entire school. This school at the time had, I think, 2,500 students. So it was a big school, a lot of faculty. And he's yeah. the only person in this school that saw me in the way that I would want somebody to see yeah. me. So yeah. they, they saw value in me. They saw value in me. They saw um, talent in me. They saw skill in me. And he definitely went out of his way to make sure that I understood that he saw what he saw in me. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, you know, teachers are just so critical, like, and especially, I mean, at every stage of your life, but like, you know, I just think back to high school and I'm like, if I didn't have the certain teachers that I had, I probably wouldn't be here. Facts. The teacher didn't say like, no, you're meant to be in the academic stream. You're doing well. Like, you know, I wasn't the best of learner and like, I struggled in so many classes and like obviously like 
that's just one way that you could struggle. But oh my God, teachers just play such an important role. And so, you know, when someone wants to be a teacher, I think that's a big undertaking. You're making, you're shaping someone's oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. I cannot agree with you more. Like the, the amount of negative experiences I've had with teachers, like yeah. it's crazy. Like actually yeah. crazy. One teacher ended up charging me with assault. Yeah. So I got ex- a high schooler. A high schooler. Yeah. Oh a high God. school teacher. Yeah. So he ended up filing a false claim of assault against me when I was on in my fifth year so it was my last semester of the of my fifth year and I'm already on the track of trying to get into university and he filed a false claim of assault I was arrested well the police yeah the police came to my house I was arrested they fingerprinted me they took a mugshot of me I was expelled I had to go to another school to finish up my last month of school and then at that point, once I was in a holding cell, the police decided to call his witnesses, who the individuals that he listed as witnesses. And there were other teachers who were his witnesses. And it was Mr. Correa, a gym teacher, who denied his claims and yeah. said, I was there the whole time. Cam never hit him. There was no assault. And then that's when the police were like, okay, so you're not going to get charged, but you still have to get a lawyer. You still have to go to court because we have to mediate this stuff. And that process ended up lasting um, one year within the court systems. Yeah. And then that assault charge existed on my record for five years after that until I could get it removed by the RCMP. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How, but that's why I got stories. I got stories. Yeah. If we're talking about the school system, I got stories. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's I, crazy. I it's obviously with your role now, I mean, you really, it, like, the fact that you have these stories and these experiences just makes you so fit for that. But I think, like, you know, what it makes me think is people think this doesn't happen here. Oh, for sure. In where we live. And I, I think sometimes you feel a little bit like, how do I explain to someone that this happens? And and going back to the whole teachers thing, right? Like teachers mattered so much there because te- teachers were the ones with authority. And if your gym teacher said, yeah, it did happen because they happened to not be the greatest person, would you be in university now? Like, would you Probably be not. more now? Probably not. And you're still the same person, like still a stand-up guy. And I, it's just yeah. so wild to think, I don't know. Like, and I think when I look back at it and like, I just think about students and like how young they are. And how, like, they're just so innocent. What, did, what, what does a 13 or 14-year-old really know? What do they really do? For sure. And, I mean, I'm very thankful that you're here where you are now. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, I guess, what was undergrad? Like, did you find that there was a big difference between your undergrad experience versus your high school experience? Mm, I think that 100%, but also because the relationship between like the relationship between professor and student is already completely different. It's set up differently. Like you, you don't, you don't see that teacher indefinitely. That teacher, like the relationship is so removed. It's not as intimate as it is in high school or elementary school where you need to exist with these people in a microcosm for the next four years. And also university is a lot more liberal. Like you can wear your hat in class. And you're going to be okay. Whereas high school, like the teachers will come for you for wearing your hat in class. Like I've been suspended um, because I walked into school wearing a hat and they had an anti-hat rule. So like university is a lot more open. The expectation of the relationship between student and professor is completely different. So yeah, no, it was was a completely different experience. Yeah, 100%. So at what point did you decide you wanted to go into science? Because I think Uh, a lot of people kind of associate science with always just being harder and like just much more challenging. Like, don't bother with that. Just do something that's easier. Yeah. When did you kind of decide that? I guess that may have come in grade maybe 10, 11, when I started to toy with the idea of what did I want to do after high school. Yeah. And then that's when like all of my interests started to like, lean closer towards STEM, whether it was engineering, whether it was being a doctor, whether it was a scientist, like things of that nature. For me, I always felt, and this is maybe something that goes all the way back home. Like my mom always pushed the idea of education as a way out. She was always on that on that team. She was like, you need to be educated. You need to be educated. You need to do something different than 
than what we're doing and you have the opportunity that we didn't have. So make use of it. And she always thought that science, math was going to be the ticket. Yeah. So that's a narrative that I was exposed to from a very young age. Um, yeah. My parents immigrants? Yeah. My parents are immigrants. Uh, they came here from Ecuador. My mom went to grade, up to grade two. And she was taken out of school to come home and cook and clean. And my dad ended up uh, going, I think, up to grade 10 or 11. He didn't finish high school. But my dad had a little bit of a different path. My, both my parents were experienced poverty in Ecuador. But my mom was one of eight kids. So okay. their poverty looked different than my dad's poverty, who was one of two kids. Oh. And they tried their best to like fund my father's education. So my dad had right. a longer opportunity, but yeah. So yeah, it, was, it would be around grade 10, 11 that I decided to start thinking about what post-secondary looks like. And it just always seemed like it was going to be science or math. Yeah. Yeah. I think many immigrant children of immigrants hear that science and math is the ticket. Yeah. Uh, like like same with what my parents have kind of said and so I guess throughout undergrad when did you decide you wanted to do master's why did you decide you want to do a master's how did you meet your supervisor and stuff what was that so like? yeah so I'm actually Costin's one of Costin's first graduate students so the year I started um, graduate school was his first full year at Ryerson so Costin was not on my radar but one of his best friends, Rob, Dr. Botello, was on my radar. So yeah. I connected with Rob because at that moment, he was the only person that I was aware of that was doing work in cell signaling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the stuff that was the first thing that I experienced in undergrad where I was like, I like this because I liked how much of a puzzle it was like doing experiments to figure out what turns on what what connects to what um that to me i love puzzles i love problem solving i love puzzles and that was the first thing that i was like i'm in that like this is what i enjoy so i ended up approaching rob about graduate school and he didn't have any funding to take on any new graduate students and he's the one that was like talk to costin because costin is setting his lab up he's doing cell signaling work chat with him, see what's up. And if you enjoy it, try to make it happen. And I was connected uh, to Costin. I decided to do graduate school because I was actually planning to apply to med school. Mm, Okay. Uh, And I decided that I wasn't in a position to submit the most successful application. So how can I, what can I do to just make that application a little bit more rigorous yeah exactly so i did graduate school and during graduate school i also focused on like exploring other initiatives to help beef up that package yeah for sure so i guess you know you ended up going to graduate school but before that when you were younger what did you want to be when you grew up a judge Judge, when I was four years old, I'll never forget this. I was in JK. There was this girl that I liked. Her name was Sarah. She was my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> what's up, Nathan? <laughs> she, uh, yeah, so I was in grade four. Sarah's sister came up to me and we were chatting. And then she asked me, Oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I did not think twice. I said, A judge. And yeah. that was it. I wanted to be a judge. I don't understand why. Maybe it had to do with kind of being the youngest sibling, getting short, short, uh, short stick from time to time or the short end of the stick. Um, maybe I had like a big drive for like justice and fairness. Now, looking back, well, looking at the system and the current state of the system, it doesn't seem like the judicial system is the most fair, the most just. So I don't know if four-year-old Cam would want to be a judge anymore, but maybe he would. And maybe he'd want to be like a part of the solution to that. Yeah. 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 Judge. So I guess after you did your master's, you didn't want to stick around for more grad school. You wanted to work? Yeah, so after masters, I yeah, I masters out, I didn't transfer to PhD and it was because I was on the track to go to med school. So the year after right, right. 
I finished graduate school is when I decided that I would start looking at applying to medical school while working yeah. full time. Oh, interesting. So then when did the switch happen to, I don't want to do med school, I'm going to work yeah. Visions of Science full time? It was, so I finished grad school in 2015. I was applying to medical school in 2017. And in 2017, 28, transitioning into 2018, while I was applying to medical school, me, Eugenia, and the rest of the team at Visions of Science were able to grow the organization from $65,000 in 2015 and reaching about 120 kids to 750,000 by, or sorry, just under 600,000 in 2018. Yeah. And closer to, at that time, we had probably 20 locations. So reaching closer to 500 participants. Yeah, and Yeah, and that started to spark entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, a lot of people around us started to talk about, you guys might want to consider leveraging these resources or your talents to explore other endeavors. And at that point, like I was receiving emails to go interview at med schools, um, mm. but was stuck between do I go to med school and pursue a legacy on my own or do I stay here and continue to drive visions missions and yeah. explore other entrepreneurial ideas so yeah. I decided to stay with the community and help grow visions as much as I can and start seeding ideas what do you think was a driving factor there like was it you know was it those moments where you would see the impact that you're making for a student or was it like that feeling of like, oh, I can explore business opportunities. For sure. I think the biggest thing, it was a lot of things. It was all of that. Like it was, it was seeing the kids growing through the system and seeing the impact that they're making and wanting to uh, contribute more to that. It was also the idea of growing businesses. But one of the biggest things was that, and I mentioned this earlier, me and my family don't have the best relationship. At a young age, I was around maybe 11 years old, 12 years old, when I started to realize that I wasn't going to get support from my family. So I really had to become independent and yeah. take on a bit of a lone wolf mentality. Mm -hmm. And that's how I kind of explored everything after that. Yeah. High school, lone wolf. Make up my yeah. own mind, make, do my own decisions. Don't depend on anyone for any support. Undergrad, same thing. And a lot of that stuff is tied to a lot of like the complex trauma that I experienced growing up. So that, that I guess, propensity to leave distance yeah. between relationships. I want to keep all relationships at an arm length is a byproduct of having experienced what I've experienced. So yeah. Visions of Science was one of the first places that I actually felt like a valued member of a community. I felt like I could rely on these people. I felt like I love these people. I felt like I can depend on these people. I felt like I can be vulnerable around these people. Um, and that was really one of the biggest driving factors of why I decided to stay because it, it really came down to, do I want to continue to pursue things alone? Yeah. Or do I want to pursue this with people that care about me and I care about? Yeah. I mean, relationships as an adult are quite interesting. Like you find, it's just like, and they're a lot more meaningful when they are meaningful. And they start, it starts to feel like family in places you would have really never expected it. Um, so that's quite nice. I'm glad that, and I mean, I think your team, when you came to speak at my seminar, your whole team came, which really- percent, oh, right? How committed they are, right? Like a team wouldn't necessarily go for a seminar, but yeah. that's just so fantastic. And I, I, it's rightfully so because you're just a fantastic speaker and person overall. Uh, um, thank you. I appreciate that. I do remember that the whole squad came through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, why are we so, why is it so packed here today? <laughs> so I guess like, what do you- now, what do you do? Like now, day to day, what do you do at Visions of Science? Uh, like, under, I guess under normal circumstances? Yeah. So right now I'm currently transitioning into like a, a role focusing on partnerships and collaborations. Okay. So I will be, my day to day role will look like managing, well, recruiting, um, negotiating, assessing, implementing, monitoring, monitoring, reviewing, and growing partnerships amazing yeah what so, kind of partnerships in particular all of them so from financial partnerships to program partnerships to 
um, human resource partnerships. We're trying to find a lot of people reach out to us and try to find ways they can work with us. Yeah. So we're trying to find ways that we can continue to work with people in, in the way that makes sense for them and us. Yeah. Do you find that like when people reach out to you to want to work with you, you have to really structure it? Like, I'm curious in terms of when like organizations want to work with you, is it them being like, hey, this is what we want to do? Or do they just say, hey, we want to work with you? And you kind of say, well, we need help with this. Can you do this? A little bit of both. So one of the things at Visions of Science that we do is we're always open to new ideas. So even though new ideas can be labor intensive um, and a little bit of an unknown because you don't know how much of an investment of resources or capacity you need to go to fulfill that initiative, we still like to chat about it because some might be possible, some might not be possible. So we do have set opportunities for people to engage and we always entertain the possibility of new opportunities uh, that we can engage. Yeah. Awesome. But it is a balance for the record. Yeah. It is a balance of finding like how many of those new opportunities you can explore. And then given the right timeline, anything is possible. Yeah. That sounds quite exciting. I think bringing projects to life is just always so much fun. Do you find that your role has shifted quite a bit? Like when you started, were you doing a lot of the outreach and um, a lot of the activities with students? And are you not doing that as much anymore? Yeah, when I started in 2010, I was on the I was a frontline worker. So mm -hmm. I was directly leading one of our STEM clubs and was leading a STEM club for five years in Willeridge. In 2016, when I came on board, I was responsible for coordinating half of our Toronto locations. Right. And then, yeah, the further I'm with the with the organization, the further away I'm removed from the day to day, like not the day to day, but the the f direct contact with the beneficiaries yeah yeah interesting okay well i'm gonna move into our little rapid fire section which is where i just ask you a bunch of questions and you have to answer it in a rapid fire style yep. um okay so my first question for you is what factoid do my colleagues know least about me <laughs> that's also interesting because i guess it depends what colleagues we're talking about i feel like my visions of science family like knows almost everything about me like right. a lot but I guess a lot of things that my colleagues outside of visions of science might not know is that I've been diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety since 2019 oh, okay yeah yeah interesting it's you, official yeah yeah do you find that like I mean so you're talking about this on the podcast so you're fairly open with it do you find 100%. that you like that do you find that that helps your relationships or I mean I think a lot of people experience that they might not want to talk about it and I guess just what's your experience been with talking to people about that yeah um my experience talking to people about it has been entirely positive yeah I don't I don't think that I've had a negative experience talking about it the the depression and anxiety itself does not help my relationships but i think talking about it does help my relationships because it right. does it does allow people through doors that usually they're not invited through yeah um so it does give them a little bit more of an intimate perspective perspective on me yeah i also think that the more you hear that people go through this hopefully people become more empathetic because you never 100%. know what someone's situation is yeah, and that's a big reason why I do it as well. I feel like it's important for me to destigmatize, or part of my hope is to destigmatize a lot of these like um, mental wellness um, yeah. concerns. Yeah, for sure. I, I've seen such a big difference when I started undergrad to now being in grad school. How much, like, you know, the the status quo is changing, which is hundred percent quite nice. Okay, so my next question for you is. What famous person, current or otherwise, would you most like to go to dinner with and why? Tricky. Tricky. I know. This is also like, this might be super controversial. <laughs> so I'm going to prepare for all your listeners. This, is, this <laughs> might be super controversial, but I guess the disclaimer is, for me, I think that I grab, growing up the way I grew up and being characterized as a certain persona because of where I grew up, because of things that I was involved with, um, because of the fact that I'm Latino. Um, I feel like 
I always want to hear the stories of the people that are characterized poorly. I want to hear the story from like the lion's mouth of who this person really is. I don't want to, I don't want yeah. to um, rely on someone else's narrative because yeah. history is also always won by the winners. The winners yeah. write histories how they want to write it. If the other side won, history would be completely different. Yeah. Um, so if we're looking at capitalism versus communism, if communism took over, we would be looking at, co- at capitalism like they're the bad guys. Yeah. So I would definitely want to have dinner with very notorious communist leaders interesting their perspective to understand what how they think which communist leader it is who it is but i'm trying to understand the other side yeah and i think that that's like a really a a good way of looking at things because it's difficult it's easy to just say you're wrong but it's difficult to understand what someone's actually thinking about. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think also one thing that gets, what gets lost in translation is understanding empathy and compassion doesn't mean you accept inappropriate behavior. Like you can, you can show understanding empathy and compassion and not subscribe to actions that don't make any sense. And that's one thing that I don't want to get lost in translation. I'm not saying that that what people did is always acceptable, but it doesn't yeah. mean that I, I don't get the, I shouldn't have the opportunity to try to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very difficult to have a relationship with somebody if you refuse to understand where they're coming from. 100%. Um, and again, like you said, you don't have to accept that it's right. Um, and I think, yeah, that's very interesting. I, it's, very similar to I think what I had talked about previously like just asking people questions and learning about them goes such a long way 100%. um cool okay I don't think anyone said that on the podcast so far so um <laughs> what's your favorite food pizza hands down oh, that's it's what I right. said yeah how do you yeah. like your pizza anyway anyway nice. I don't I don't believe in rules when it comes to pizza I hate when people say don't put pineapple on pizza you shouldn't put fruit on pizza but tomatoes is also a fruit and it's one of the most important ingredients to a delicious pizza. Yeah. Um, so I don't follow that logic. Yeah. Uh, my favorite pizza all time, pepperoni, pineapple, and green olives. The, the olives, man. The olives. That's what I said, too. You need the olives. 100%. 100%. Oh. You need some salt. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite beverage? Uh, water. Ooh, nice. <laughs> That's boring. That's super boring. If it's not water, it's ginger ale. But okay. don't get it twisted. Never Schweppes. Um, okay. Never craft ginger ale. I want Canada Dry only. Yes. Um, the champagne of ginger ale is Canada Dry. Yeah. Yep. I agree with that. Do you like ginger beer? Uh, yeah. I do like ginger ale, ginger beer, but ginger ale is where it's at, really. What's your favorite color? I don't have one. <laughs> Sorry. Sure. What color would you pick it in? Uh, if I had to pick a shirt, it Just depends like what the it depends what it depends what what's happening in um, New York Fashion Week. We'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> we'll All right then. If I was not so complete the sentence. If I was not an ex, so your current role, I would like to be. Oh, a professional gambler, hundred percent. A professional gambler or starting shortstop for the New York Yankees. Okay. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, gambling. Like so, in my household two things were very important. Baseball. So we're from Latin America. My parents are from Ecuador and it's either soccer or baseball. Those are the sports. Those are the predominant sports in Central and Latin and Latin America, uh, South America. Um, My family just so happened to be on the baseball side. So I grew up playing baseball since I was four years old and I always wanted to play for the Yankees. Um, And the other side of that is my family always plays cards. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah we always play cards, whether it's poker, whether it's, um, we have this game in Ecuador called Rume, which is like gin rummy. But yeah, so I grew up playing cards. And if I could do that for a living and make uh, a good living at that, I'm in. I'm sure you could start that off as like a side hustle. Oh, 100%. Go from there. (laughs) You're right. Let's start practicing. Yeah, I don't know if you want me on your team (laughs) for baseball or for the gambling. We'll see. 
Okay, so what is something in the top 10 of your bucket list? Top 10 of the bucket list? I actually don't have a bucket list either. I'm going to be the worst at this, but <laughs> I was thinking about it. Um, and what I can come down to is I really want visions of, sci visions of science to have naming rights on one of the tallest buildings of downtown Toronto. So you see Scotiabank, yeah. the RBC, and one thing that I'm trying to do is get visions of science uh, to get the naming rights to one of those buildings. You know, that's very specific, and I really like that. And I'm sure, you know, you've got a vision. You can literally see the building. 100%. And I think if you can see it, it'll happen. 100%. One day. Yeah. Manifest it. Yeah, 100%. I'm so excited to see that. I'm going to be driving by and think back to this conversation. Okay. So who and we're going to have to pull up the receipts. Yeah. Like we're going to pull up this podcast as soon as that uh, the naming rights are granted. And I know. it was predicted yeah. here first. 100%. I'm going to walk around like I played a role in that. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> who is your favorite role model or was? Yeah, I don't have one. I don't have one and I don't have one. Well, okay. I don't have a traditional role model. Um, growing up the way I grew up, I didn't necessarily look up to anybody. I just had to find it within myself to yeah. drive myself and motivate myself. Again, this is very attached to the narrative of like lone wolf independent. So I didn't necessarily look up to anybody and try to like model what they're doing. I just had to focus on getting the energy within myself to do that. Yeah. But with that said, people that I currently look to to support are people that have similar lived experiences and have been able to succeed despite those yeah. lived experiences. And I have a team of like everyone on the team is that. So yeah. from the ED, Eugenia Duadu, Darren Sam, Destiny Shaw, like these are individuals in the organization that have similar lived experience to me and yeah. despite that stuff they're out here putting on for the city yeah i mean your role models can be your peers right 100 percent. yeah i agree with you i don't have a role model just because if you i find that they always say don't meet your heroes and i, I find that's pretty true okay what is your greatest achievement Oh, for that, it would have to be education. Like, it would have to be the fact that I am who I am and have gone through everything that I've gone through. Like, the intersectionality of all my experiences, like Latino, yeah. immigrant, poverty, the fact that my parents don't have an education, gang-related, um, that, and, but despite all of that stuff, being able, not despite all of that stuff, but um, being able to accomplish at a high level, um, through these intersectionalities it's crazy like i like the stats are crazy like yeah. in 20 in 2007 people from latin american backgrounds were at a coin flip to succeed in writing reading and math according to yeah. the eqao like it was literally 50 percent, and it gets worse as you go through high school in 2016 28 percent of uh, latin americans in ontario go to university mm -hmm. um that same number is reduced by 13% if you fail one class in grade nine. So if you fail a class in grade nine and you're a racialized individual, you have a 13% chance historically of getting into university. Okay. And I've, yeah, and I definitely failed my fair share of classes in high yeah. school. It took me five years to finish. Um, but the fact that the yeah. odds were definitely stacked against me, um, but I was still able to come out on top and finish a graduate degree. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic achievement. And I'm so thankful that you were able to share that with us. So on the flip side, what's your biggest failure? Uh, easy. It's definitely perpetuating internalized racism and oppression. I think that like now I'm starting to understand how being who I am doesn't make me exempt of perpetuating um, narratives that are born because of colonization. Yeah. So the idea that um, Latinas are crazy. Yeah. Latinas are sassy. They're spicy. Yeah. There's too yeah. much energy. Like for a long time, that's stuff that I would also say. Like I would say things like, oh, I didn't, I don't want to date a Spanish woman because they're too crazy for me. Yeah. Um, and that's that bull. The fact that I've been perpetuating that internalized racism for years is definitely my greatest failure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, 
you know, as if you're a person of color, it's very easy to fall into that um, because you have your own struggles. Uh, but you know, you're just you can be just as guilty in some in some ways. And I think it's been coming up a lot now. Like I'm from the South Asian community, and there's been a lot of talk within our community to be like, hey, like we're not amazing. Like there's plenty of racism within our communities, and yeah, yeah, it's 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 good to reflect on that. Okay, so what spot in the world do you most like traveling to? Um, my friend's house. Nice. <laughs> Any of my friend's houses. And again, I, I, I don't necessarily like questions like this because I feel like questions like this kind of exclude um, a lot of people that can't afford traveling. Yeah. Um, I'm one of those people that didn't travel. I, yeah. I went to Ecuador once when I was 17 years old and my parents had to save up like over, it was like a three-year plan. Yeah. to try to get to Ecuador. Yeah. Uh, so I don't have a favorite place to travel except for um, wherever my friends are. Yeah. Wherever there's love, that's my favorite place to travel. Yeah. And you know, that might just, that might just be a better answer than saying I like going to Italy, right? Because <laughs> if you're not with the right people, then any place is not the best place. 100%. Uh, so what is your favorite hobby? Probably running. I definitely love oh. running. Yeah, I yeah, throw I, I started running in undergrad and I used it kind of as a way to kind of meditate and just escape. And I've done that since then. So over the last 12, 13 years. And yeah, yeah running is definitely hobby. yeah. Running for me is like so transferable. That's why because when I'm running, um, it's me against myself. Whenever my body is tired and my body doesn't want to keep going and I say, just do one more kilometer, I say, do one more sprint. For me, I find that that helps me build resilience that I need that can then go into anything else that I'm doing. So yeah. when I am working and I'm tired and I don't want to do this, the work that I currently need to do, just one more hour, just yeah. do one more hour and you'll be okay. Um, so running has definitely been a blessing in my life. And one of the things that I definitely enjoy doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good way of looking at it, I think. Um, something I actually do, too. Um, well, to round things off, what is one piece of it? Like, if you could talk to your second year self, what is something that you would tell second year Cam? I'm giving him the lottery numbers to a big <laughs> jackpot, 100%. <laughs> Nice. The nice. biggest jackpot you can think of. I'm going through, like, I'm going through, um, what are those books called that say, like, um, everything? I can't remember, but there's like books that have historical records of like every sporting event. Like archives? Um, it's not, there's a very specific word. I can't remember what it is. Okay. But, uh, I'm going through that book. I'm finding what the biggest jackpot is and I'm telling Cam to put the money on that. Yeah. I'm ending generational poverty forever for my family. Amazing. <laughs> and I'm starting generational wealth. <laughs> oh, you know that, that I don't think anyone said that either but I like it I appreciate that answer amazing well thank you so much for joining us for our podcast today you've really shared so much about your life which I really appreciate and I think a lot of the students listening to the podcast will really appreciate and I hope that a lot of it resonates with people you know whether they've had the same lived experiences or not um, again going back to opening opening people's eyes and increasing empathy amongst ourselves and for our peers is quite important um and you know this podcast is going to be a really great way of doing that so thank you so much for joining us um, my pleasure and hopefully we'll have you back on in a couple of months years maybe to see how things are going with the board of governors anytime hit me up i'm ready you guys put the bat signal up in the air and i'm there amazing 